Week 7 Lecture, February 28th, Finding, Understanding, and Evaluating Scholarly Sources, and What Do Those Numbers Actually Mean? Welcome to Week 7. This week, we're discussing what most students think of when they think of research, scholarly journal articles. There's a lot of material in this week's folder for you to review. Essentially, I've broken up the resources this week into three categories, finding scholarly sources, determining whether scholarly sources are credible and useful, and understanding scholarly sources. Typically, by the time students take intro to research, they've at least heard of or skimmed academic databases, though in my experience, a lot of students don't know how to use them effectively. I should also be clear that when I use the term academic databases, I am to some extent referring both to those you can find outside the library, like Google Scholar, PubMed, and ERIC, and those you would find through the Stockton Library webpage. One trend I've noticed in the last 10 years or so is that more and more academic resources are being made open access, meaning you don't have to be a student or belong to a special organization to access them. Just like open access textbooks have made school more affordable for lots of students, open access journals have made academic research more accessible for non-students. I'm a fan of this trend because it means people can read the research that impacts their lives in so many ways, though many of us don't realize it. Of course, there is also a challenge to broader access. Many general readers don't have the basic data and statistical literacy to really understand what they're reading. Thankfully, resources to help us improve that area are also more widely available. For the purposes of this discussion, I'd like to make a few key points. One, sometimes when you search external tools like Google Scholar, you run into paywalls, which ask you to pay something to gain full access to articles. As a Stockton student, you do not need to pay for access. Frequently, if you find an article online that asks you to pay for it, you can also search for the article title on Stockton's library website and find you have access to the full text version of the article. If you still can't access the full text though, please ask me for help. Between working for two universities and attending a third, I can usually get you what you need, and I'm very happy to do so. Two, it's important to understand how to get the most out of the search process which may mean taking a look at my screencasts on how to search Google Scholar and the Stockton Library databases. There are a lot of resources out there, and it can be overwhelming to figure out the most effective way to find academic articles on your topic. In addition to the screencasts, consider using subject-specific guides on the Stockton Library site. If you can narrow down your research topic to one or two specific disciplines, for example, education or physics, you'll help yourself a lot. Please also take a look at the Research Resources folder on Blackboard, where I've posted some very helpful links for your research. You can make your life a lot easier if you search the right kinds of databases for the information you need. Three, but it won't matter how strong your search strategy is if you don't understand what a journal article is telling you. These articles are written for expert audiences, so it's completely understandable that you won't get some of what the authors are writing about. That's no excuse, though, because you can learn. I strongly recommend watching or listening to the video on how to read an academic paper and taking a look at my screencast review of Michael Fossmeyer's handy PowerPoint presentation called How to Read a Scientific Paper. For our purposes, the terms scientific paper, scholarly article, and academic paper refer to pretty much the same thing. So let's chat about the best way to approach a scientific paper. The most important thing to know about them is they are not meant to be read the way other written texts are meant to be read. Sure, there are some geeky academics out there, myself included sometimes, 
that like to read them from start to finish and gain whatever newfound wisdom they can from them. But for the most part, that's not the most effective approach. These articles are written to become part of the scholarly record, to become part of the conversation on a given research topic. They are much more useful as a reference than an article. Here's the order in which I recommend you review them. One, read the abstract to find out if it's even useful for your research topic. Sometimes an article title sounds like it applies to your topic, but when you read the abstract, you learn it's not actually that helpful. Reading that brief 250 to 300 words could save you an hour or two of trouble later. Two, if it does look useful, read the conclusion. That means moving from the start of the article to the end. Find out what the authors discovered in their research. Some of the major conclusions will be hinted at in the abstract, but you can't get the full picture until you actually read the section on the data the researchers found. Three, if you're still thinking this article is helpful, go backwards again and review the introduction. You'll often find a brief literature review here, which is helpful in two ways. First, it gives you background info and context for the study. And second, it references other sources that could also be useful to your research. Most literature reviews reference seminal or core studies in the field, which means it's a quick way for you to identify the stuff you should really be reading. Four, then read the results. This will mean getting into the weeds of the research and looking at a bunch of tables and figures. These can be difficult to understand sometimes, particularly if there are a lot of them. But remember that phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words? These pictures are worth thousands and thousands of words because they show in condensed fashion what all the fuss is about. If you need help reading the graphs and charts, you're welcome to ask me, or you may even want to go to the Math Tutoring Center. I want to caution you, however, that just because you find a seemingly strong academic source in a scholarly journal doesn't mean it's automatically credible. The article I've included in this week's folder, from the website callingbullshit.org, does a good job of laying out some questions you'll want to ask yourself about the article and the journal in which it's published. As I've mentioned in previous weeks, every source requires evaluation to see if it's useful and credible for your purposes. As Bergstrom and West, the creators of the Calling Bullshit curriculum online, point out, you've got to ask yourself some questions to ensure you haven't fallen into the, this looks good so it must be true trap. The peer review process is incredibly helpful in this way, but it's not perfect. In fact, it's been criticized in a lot of ways over the years, and for good reasons. That doesn't mean you can't trust anything you read, but it means skepticism is warranted here just as much as it is anywhere else. So here are the questions you can ask yourself to evaluate an academic article. One, where has it been published? Not all scholarly journals are equally useful or credible. Remember when I mentioned a few weeks ago this concept of the journal impact factor? Well, it's a useful tool to determine whether the journal in which your article has been published is broadly credible. Journal impact factors range from one to 30. And as Bergstrom and West point out, anything over one is probably good for your purposes while anything over 10 is outstanding. And it's very easy to find a journal's impact factor on Google, so Google away. Note, if a journal doesn't have an impact factor, that doesn't mean it's totally unreliable, but it does indicate some caution is merited. Two, are the claims commensurate with the venue? In other words, does the article's headline and central claim fit with the journal in which it is published? Bergstrom and West give a couple of great examples of what they mean by this question, but in general, if you are looking at an article that makes a major claim within the field you're researching, is it in an equally major journal? If not, there's probably a reason for that. 
Major claims that change the discussion in a discipline are generally published in major journals with relatively high impact factors. Three, has the paper been retracted or otherwise questioned? For reputable journals, retraction notices are easy to spot. They usually appear right at the top of the article page, above the headline or very close to it. In less reputable journals, you'll probably have to search for a retraction notice, if it's available at all. If you find an article that makes a big claim, try Googling the article title in quotation marks, followed by the word retraction. That's a pretty quick way to find out if it's no longer credible. And just a note here, retractions can happen for all kinds of reasons. A paper is not always pulled from publication because it has no merit at all and all its results are trash. Actually, most of the time, articles are retracted because of issues other researchers have had replicating the study. And sometimes replications are difficult because the researchers didn't maintain their data responsibly. But for your purposes, if a paper has been retracted, move on and find another one. Four, is the publisher legitimate or predatory? This is a tougher question to answer for beginning researchers, because how would you know? If you're unfamiliar with the publishing landscape and the discipline you're researching, you may have a difficult time knowing who's predatory and who's not. A lot of times, that journal impact factor is useful here too. Journals with higher impact factor ratings are far less likely to be predatory because they're usually recognized as legitimate in the field. Five, how much should I depend on Google Scholar? While Bergstrom and West phrase this question a bit differently, asking instead how valuable it is for a paper to be indexed in Google Scholar, the question ultimately gets to the same issue. Can you trust what Google Scholar gives you? Of course, my answer is, it's complicated. In many cases, I think Google Scholar is fine, but if you're a beginning researcher, it can be tough to distinguish between scholarly articles, news articles, magazine stories, and other results Google throws at you. If you're not sure what kind of source you're looking at, ask someone. It's also helpful to look at the publishing outlet that printed the story. You can often tell whether it's an academic publisher or something targeting a more general audience. Six, who are the authors? This seems like such an obvious question, but you'd be surprised how often students don't bother looking into the credentials of the authors. I don't expect you to do a full background check on every author, but it's pretty easy to Google an author's name and see a list of other articles they've published, as well as where they work, especially if they're in academia, and what their research expertise is. You can also find information in the body of many research articles that tells you whether the author has a financial incentive or conflict of interest that could color the way they report their findings. Remember, you don't want to take it on faith that the National Pork Board is going to be unbiased about what kind of meat is best for Americans to eat. Finally, we come to our discussion of understanding what's buried in those academic articles. In recent years, I've become a major fan of teaching students basic data literacy skills. That is, how to understand basic statistical terms and what charts and graphs are telling them. You don't need to be a researcher or mathematician to understand most of this stuff. You can interpret a lot of it based on context. This week, you'll see I lean on the journalist's resource again to explain some basic data literacy principles. I've used this site in the past because I think research students and journalists have quite a bit in common, namely that they need to wade through some complex information and figure out how to report it in a responsible and ethical way. The first article reviews some pretty basic, but nonetheless important statistical terms you'll most likely encounter in your research. If you've taken a stats or research methods course before, these terms may be familiar, but if you haven't, let's review them. Causation and correlation. Have you ever heard the phrase, 
correlation is not causation, it means that just because two things happen at the same time, that does not necessarily mean one caused the other. Consider the following example. A study shows that there is a significant number of churches in a specific city. The same study shows there is a high rate of gun violence in that city. As the rate of churches increases in a city, so does the rate of gun violence. Thus, the researchers conclude that churches lead to gun violence. Can you see all the ways this conclusion is flawed? First, just because two things increase at a roughly linear rate doesn't mean one causes the other. It's possible the third variable effect is at work here, meaning there is another third variable that influences both the number of churches and the amount of gun violence. Third variables are also often called confounding variables. Second, how do we know it's not the other way around? That as gun violence increases, the number of churches goes up because local faith leaders want to help address that violence. The moral of the story here is that when a study claims to have demonstrated a causal relationship between two variables, look at the justification for that conclusion. Does it make sense, given the data? Causation means that one phenomenon or variable definitely influences another. Descriptive and inferential statistics. These terms represent broadly the two main types of statistics, and they are exactly what they sound like. Descriptive stats describe a situation, while inferential stats represent conclusions researchers make based on existing data. If we use the above example again, a descriptive statistic might be that 65% of residents have witnessed gun violence in the city being studied. An inferential statistic might be that based on existing information, between 60 and 75% of residents in the city will witness gun violence in the future. Samples and populations. A sample is a small subgroup within a larger population. If I surveyed 100 residents in a city of 10,000 people, those 100 residents are my sample, while the larger group of 10,000 is the population. It's often not possible to study an entire population. So researchers have to find useful ways of studying smaller subsets of those populations that will allow them to make broader generalizations. Random and stratified samples. How I select my study sample will determine how broadly I can make those generalizations. A truly random sample means that subjects are chosen completely by chance. Everyone has the same chance of being invited to participate in a study. A stratified sample means I look carefully at the population I want to study and I intentionally choose specific subgroups of people who reflect the larger population, maybe by age, gender, ethnicity, etc. Generalization can only happen when my sample is truly representative of the larger population. Sample variation must also be considered. That is, the differences between people in my study sample are important and often lead to what's called a margin of error. A margin of error is reflected in a percentage and demonstrates the broader range within which our information is probably accurate. We hear this term a lot during political polling. If I say 53% of voters are in favor of a candidate with a margin of error of four percentage points, that means somewhere between 49%, which is 53% minus 4% on the low end, and 57%, which is 53% plus 4% on the high end, probably favor this person. Null and alternative hypotheses. Most studies are trying to reject the null hypothesis, or the claim that a correlation or causal relationship does not exist. This is a kind of confusing, backwards way of saying researchers want to demonstrate that an effect does exist by showing that it does not not exist. The alternative hypothesis then explains that an effect 
does exist. Take our churches and gun violence example. The null hypothesis would say that there is no relationship between the presence of churches and the presence of gun violence in the city being studied. As the researcher, my alternative hypothesis is that a relationship does exist. Significance tests, usually represented through a p-value, demonstrate the probability of seeing an effect if the null hypothesis is true. The p-value, or probability value, describes how likely your study results would have occurred by random chance. In other words, if the null hypothesis was true. The smaller the p-value, the less likely the results occurred by random chance, meaning the alternative hypothesis could be true. Most research uses 0.05 as the standard p-value by which significance is measured. If the p-value is less than or equal to 0.05, the alternative hypothesis is probably accurate, and there's a relationship between two variables. If it's higher than 0.05, the null hypothesis is probably true, and there is no relationship. Correlation is a way to explain how variables move together. When they are positively correlated, as one variable moves, the other does too. In our example, if the increase or decrease of churches in a city coincides with the increase or decrease of gun violence in that city, there is a positive correlation, though we still have work to do to see which phenomenon is affecting the other or if there is another variable at work. When two variables move in opposite directions, they are negatively correlated. It's important to note that in research, positive doesn't necessarily mean good and negative doesn't necessarily mean bad. These terms just explain the kind of relationship that might exist between two variables. Measures of central tendency demonstrate values that trend toward the center of a set. The most common are mean, median, and mode. Mean is the average of a set of values, and that's the calculation a lot of people default to, but I find median more helpful in many cases. The median gives you a more real sense of central values when there are extreme cases on one side of the set. For example, if I survey 100 employees about their salaries, and 95 of them cluster in one area, but five cluster much higher because they're executive staff members, that's going to pull my average toward the higher end. But we know that a small number of much higher paid staff do not actually represent the average salary of that company. The median takes into account the fact that those five highly paid staff are outliers. That is, they do not represent most people at the company. So, it will value their salaries lower than it does the other 95 employees and give us a more accurate view of the central income. It's not critically important that you remember all these terms, but it is important that you come back to this lecture or to the journalist's resource article if and when you need a reminder. These terms will frequently pop up in scholarly studies, and if you don't know what that means, you're missing most of the study's significance. The second article gives you a series of eight questions to ask yourself to determine whether an academic study is useful for you. Not all of them are useful for all students, though, so pay attention to the questions that fit the kinds of studies you're finding for your topic. Let's start with an example that makes these questions make sense. Say I'm studying whether educational technology influences student learning positively or negatively. Here are the journalist questions you could apply to this study. One, what are the researchers' hypotheses? In the EdTech example, my hypothesis is that introducing specific types of educational technology in the college classroom positively impacts student learning. Two, what are the independent and dependent variables? This question is helpful if you're examining a study that seeks to demonstrate that one phenomenon causes another, or that two phenomena are at least correlated with each other. Going back to my example study, 
I might conduct an experiment to see if a specific tech tool, the independent variable, influences student learning, the dependent variable, or the thing that changes. Three, what is the unit of analysis? What is the thing or person being studied? In my example, the unit of analysis would be the individual student. I am looking to see if the student is impacted by the intervention or experiment. Four, how well does the study design address causation? Again, this question is only useful for studies that do seek to demonstrate the relationships between phenomena. In my example, I'm clearly trying to demonstrate causation, but does the design of my study actually allow me to do that? Five, what are the study's results? What has the researcher actually demonstrated? Were the results statistically significant? If not, what's the value of discussing this study in your research? Academic search tools, from introduction to college research. Scholarly content online. There are some specialized search tools on the internet that target academic audiences. Perhaps the most popular one is Google Scholar, which looks for academic scholarly content. There are also a few subject-specific search tools that you might want to become familiar with, such as PubMed for the biomedical field or ERIC for the education field. Paywalls. Typically, you would find scholarly content using a library database, but the tools described above can also help connect you to scholarly content that your college subscribes to. The problem, especially for community college students, is that these tools also find a lot of resources that your college might not subscribe to. For this reason, a lot of the content these search tools will find is behind something called a paywall. A paywall is a barrier you may encounter online when you have to pay before you can access a resource. Scholarly journal articles you find online come with a price, which can range anywhere from $25 per article up to well over $100 per article. In our scenario, you have to find 10 resources. That means, for this class assignment, it might cost you anywhere from $250 to over $1,000 to complete. At this point, you might be thinking that these academic search tools are not worth using, and we wouldn't blame you. But these tools don't always lead you to a paywall, and a paywall is not always a dead end. These tools can help you identify resources that might also be available for free in library databases your college subscribes to, and these tools will often connect you to open access resources. Open access. Open access refers to resources online, usually academic resources, that are freely available. When trying to find scholarly articles online, you will want to find open access journals or open access articles within more traditional scholarly journals. Google Scholar and Microsoft Academic Search don't do a great job of helping you limit your search results to those resources that you have access to, so it can be frustrating at times when using them to conduct research. On the other hand, PubMed and ERIC do provide ways for you to limit your search results to those resources that are freely available. Another resource to check out is the Digital Commons Network, which is a directory of open access articles and resources from universities and publications that you can access freely. Remember, for any resource you find online that you cannot access or that has a paywall, consult with a librarian to see if there's another way for you to access the resource freely. It might be possible for the library to get you access through interlibrary loan, which is when libraries cooperate with each other to provide access to resources that one library may not have, but another library does. OER, a special kind of open access resource. OER stands for Open Educational Resources. OER are materials that can be used and adopted in place of traditional course materials in order to promote equitable access to education, 
as there's no cost for the student or faculty to use OER. That means if your professor uses an OER textbook, you can access that textbook for free online. This is an OER textbook, as an example. OERs are not limited to textbooks. They could be articles, documents, movies, images, and more. What defines them are the permissions or license that comes with them. Though we won't dive into all the aspects of licensing and copyright permissions, basically, if the material is licensed so that you can share, revise, and keep a copy of the resource freely, then you have an OER. OER is different than open access in this regard, because open access only allows you to access the resource. Six, how generalizable are the results? Generalizability means that I could take the results from my sample and apply them to the larger population. If a study is too small or too brief, it's not going to be very generalizable. Imagine that in my study of EdTech in the college classroom, I evaluate only my class, which has enrolled only 25 students. There are over 10,000 students at Stockton, so I'm talking about a study group that represents about a quarter of a percent of the entire university. Seven, what limitations do the authors note? Nearly all studies acknowledge there are limitations to how they were conducted. That's because you can't conduct a study with no limitations at all. Some are minor, while others are more significant. What kinds of limitations have the authors of the study you're evaluating identified, and how important are they? Eight, what conclusions do similar studies draw? Since you're doing broad research on your topic, you should be able to see trends in similar studies. That's a lot of information. As is always true, I don't expect you to memorize all the points here. But it's important to have some basic understanding of these concepts to get the most out of your scholarly article search. As always, I'm here to help. See you next week. Selections from Using Library Databases From Introduction to College Research Library Databases. What's inside them? Why Library Databases? Although the internet houses great resources, some websites are not appropriate for college-level research, and sometimes professors have concerns over the information that students might encounter online. In a previous chapter, we explored fact-checking, and in a later chapter, we will discuss web search strategies to find relevant and reliable sources. Unfortunately, you can't find everything through a Google search, which is one reason why you'd want to use a library database. Most library databases provide access to resources that you would normally subscribe to or pay for, such as a newspaper. You can access some newspaper articles for free online, but websites often limit the amount of articles you can view freely. For example, if you visit the Los Angeles Times online, you might be able to view one or two articles. After that point, you will need to purchase a subscription to read more. But a library database will provide free access for students and professors at your college. Another advantage of using a library database is that the resources are secured and safe to access. Some websites require you to accept additional considerations and agreements before accessing materials. But what are you agreeing to? Websites, by their nature, are dynamic resources. Their content can change without warning. A resource in a database typically will not change and will often come with a permanent link, sometimes called a permalink, so that you can find and share the resource in the future. Please listen to the following video, What are Databases and Why You Need Them, for a concise summary of the key differences between using library databases and the web for your research.
Additional database features. Library databases tend to come with additional tools to support your research. These tools can include help with writing citations, easy to use filters to limit your search results, and options to save the article for later use. Whenever you use a library database, you will want to become acquainted with these additional features that will streamline and support your research process. Takeaways. Library databases versus websites. Cost. Databases are always free for students to access. Websites vary. Sometimes you can access resources freely, other times you can't. Privacy and security. Exposure of students' information is limited through library databases, but you might often must agree to terms before accessing content on a website. Reliability. Information in a library database will not change unless the subscription changes. Websites are dynamic and content can change daily. Features. Databases typically come with a range of tools to help you find relevant resources. You have more control over the results you want to see. Search engines online have limited features to narrow down results. You have less control over the results you want to see. Choosing a library database. Many options. If you look at your library's database list, you might feel overwhelmed and confused. Why are there so many databases to choose from and which one should you use? The first thing to realize is that library databases are each unique and specialized. Because of this, libraries tend to subscribe to multiple library databases to provide access to a range of materials that support the curriculum of the college. To choose a database, you need to know what each library database provides access to. EBSCO, ProQuest, Gale. There are three big companies in the world of library databases, EBSCO, ProQuest, and Gale. Most likely, your library will have access to library databases that are owned by at least one of these, if not all three. Their library databases will generally provide you access to digital versions of resources, ebooks, newspaper articles, magazine articles, and scholarly journal articles. These companies also provide access to multimedia resources, such as streaming video and audio files. Some of the most common library databases from these companies are EBSCO's Academic Search Complete, ProQuest Central, and Gale's Academic OneFile. Any of these three library databases will connect you to the full range of resource types. These three companies own so many library databases that they each also offer an aggregator search tool, which your library might or might not have access to depending on what they subscribe to. An aggregator search tool allows you to search across all of the library databases that your library subscribes to, owned by a single company. So, instead of searching in each of EBSCO's library databases individually, you can do a single search using EBSCOhost. Likewise, you can use the ProQuest platform to search across most ProQuest resources, and Gale's PowerSearch to search across most Gale library databases. These aggregators also allow you to customize which library databases you want to search within. Note, however, that additional features are often available when library databases are searched one at a time. Beyond these three companies are many others that your library might subscribe to that can be just as or maybe even more resourceful than the databases already discussed. Speaking to one of your librarians to understand which databases are the most appropriate for your research topic is always strongly recommended. Scenario. Using the scenario for this chapter and knowing that I need to find resources about artificial intelligence, I might want to focus on library databases that hold science articles including general, multidisciplinary choices that cover science as well as many subjects. 
After looking at my library's database list, I determine that I will start with EBSCOhost and choose EBSCO's Science Full Text, Academic Search Complete, and Master File. By using EBSCOhost, I'll be able to search all three of these library databases at the same time. Scholarly articles, magazine articles, and newspaper articles. Identifying different types of articles. In our scenario, you have to identify and find different types of articles. As pointed out already, the library databases often come with filters that allow you to separate out these different types of resources. There are even some library databases, such as JSTOR, that specialize in scholarly journal articles, or ProQuest's U.S. Major Dailies, which specializes in newspapers. But what if you're using an aggregator, such as EBSCOhost, and you aren't using a filter to limit your search? How will you be able to differentiate a newspaper article from a magazine article or from a scholarly journal article? And why does it matter? There's a separate chapter that goes into the differences between information resources in more depth, but for quick reference, consider the following characteristics of these resource types. Scholarly articles. Scholarly journal articles are usually long. They're also written with academic language that can sometimes be very technical. Especially in the sciences and social sciences, you will notice predictable sections within them, with subheadings like introduction, literature review, methodology, results findings, and discussion conclusion. They'll have a list of references or works cited and are often authored by more than one person, especially in the sciences and social sciences. Scholarly journal articles focus on research topics and questions, which means that they may not be reflecting on specific events happening at the moment of publication. Rather, they tend to reflect on trends and larger issues. Magazine articles. Magazine articles will generally be shorter than scholarly journal articles written so that they can be understood easily by non-experts and may or may not have different sections within the article. If they do, the subheadings will not be as predictable as they are in a scholarly journal article from the sciences or social sciences, and the section headings will probably relate back to the topic of the article. A magazine article in PDF format will probably be colorful and have images. You probably won't find a list of references or work cited at the end of a magazine article. In contrast to scholarly journal articles, Magazine articles tend to look at specific events occurring at or around the time of publication, and the authors try to analyze that event to explain why it's important. Newspaper articles. Newspaper articles are usually the shortest of all three article types. Like magazine articles, they're written in simple language to be understood easily by the general public, but because they're shorter, they don't usually have different subsections within the article. While a printed newspaper article may have some images, there will be fewer than in magazines. Newspaper articles in library databases are typically only available as HTML, no images. They also tend to describe events that are occurring at the moment the article was published, with very little analysis of importance other than the fact that the event happened. First-hand accounts from people who experienced an event are often reported in newspaper articles. Exceptions to this would be editorials and op-ed pieces, which are opinion-based articles about an issue. Preparing to use a database. What do you need to find? Options. Most library databases give you the option to save, download, or email the resources that you find. You will want to get familiar with how the library databases present these options to you. For example, some library databases allow you to create your own free account within them. The advantage of creating an account, for example, with EBSCO or ProQuest, is that you may be able to create folders to store links to resources you can easily find again later. 
You might also be able to save searches so that you don't have to remember which keywords you entered. You can sometimes set up alerts attached to those searches, so if new resources are added to the library database, which can happen daily, you will be notified about those new relevant resources. Emailing sources. But maybe you don't want to set up an account. Not a problem. Many library databases allow you to send an email to yourself with the article or a link back to the article, without ever creating an account for the company that makes that database. You will, however, have to log into your college library's website to access library databases from off-campus, so the database knows you're a student there. If you're unsure how to do this, ask a librarian at your college. This is where you will need to explore what options the library database offers. Sometimes, the email option is simple. Sometimes, you'll have to fill out a form. If you see a form that needs to be filled out, review it carefully. The library database might be offering some great ways to save you time later such as an option to include the citation of the article in the email. You can also send the article to other people. If you're working on a group project and everyone needs to look at the same resources, you might want to include your group members on the email form. Downloading sources. Some people prefer not to email the resource and they just want to download it. This is sometimes an option, depending on the library database and the resource. If it's available as a download, you might want to keep notes about the resource so that you remember which library database you found it within and any publication details you might need to build a proper citation for the resource. Preparing to use a database. What do you need to find? One of the main tasks that you'll do within library databases is find articles, often scholarly journal articles. Fortunately, many library databases include filters that limit your results to just scholarly journal articles. This is especially helpful when using the big aggregator search tools from EBSCO, ProQuest, and Gale. But there are often other considerations to take into account when finding resources. As a reminder, always check your assignment requirements and ask yourself these questions. Assignment guiding questions. One, how many resources am I required to find? Two, what types of resources am I required to find? Three, are there any types of resources that I am not allowed to use? Four, is there a requirement related to the publication date of the resources? And five, are there any other requirements that might be helpful to remember? Due dates, citation styles, etc. Let's look at our scenario for this chapter to answer these questions. Your English professor has assigned the class an argumentative essay. Your assigned topic for the essay is artificial intelligence. You are required to find evidence to support your argument from scholarly journals, magazines, newspapers, and books. You have to cite at least seven sources, at least one of each type, and you also have the option to use a video for one of your sources. Your professor states that she doesn't want you to use websites for your essay. You must use library databases and format your citations according to MLA. According to the scenario, we can answer the guiding questions as follows. One, seven resources. Two, at least one scholarly journal article, one magazine article, one newspaper article, and one book. That's only four out of the seven. You must find more of those resources to equal seven, and you can also use videos. All resources must come from library databases. Three, you can't use websites. Four, no publication date restrictions were provided. Five, MLA citation style must be used. Having this information outlined for yourself will help you stay focused as you search through the library databases. After identifying some keywords to seek resources related to your topic, you can then use filters to limit your results to specific resource types, depending on the library database you're using. 
You should also be able to limit to a publication date when necessary. Okay, so here's the situation. You spend all day playing latest video game involving guns, and now you have an article summary due tomorrow. This video is here to help you find the best and quickest way to extract the information you need from an academic paper. The first thing to be aware of is that academic papers are not written the same way as other forms of literature. You may be tempted to read them through from beginning to end, like a short story or a newspaper article. Do not do this. There are more efficient ways to read papers. What we're going to do is read through the paper in three passes. In the first pass, we want to see the framework of the paper. The things we want to look at are the abstract, the introduction and conclusion, section headings, and any tables or diagrams, including their captions. As you're skimming, underline any unfamiliar words or phrases for you to look up later. As you read through the paper for the first time, ask yourself questions such as, what is the point or thesis of this paper? What are the main arguments of the paper? Why is this paper important? And how does it contribute to my field of study? You may not be able to answer all these questions yet, but it's good to keep them in mind. If you have any other questions, make sure to write those down too. At the end of your first pass, try to summarize the paper in a sentence or two, in your own words. If you can do that, you've gotten what you need to out of your first pass. The second pass is where you really dig into the paper. Pay closer attention to the beginning and ending of each major section. Also, pay attention to any of the highlighted sections from the first pass. If there are still words or phrases that you don't understand, now is the time to look them up. Try to answer all of the questions you wrote down earlier. The third and final pass is where you tie it all together. You should have a good idea of what the paper is trying to say at this point, so now it's time to train a critical eye on it. This is the time for reflection and analysis. Take notes as you read, looking at arguments, evidence, and conclusions. By the time you are done this, you should have the basis for your summary completed. Try to use your own words as much as you can, rather than copying and pasting quotes. Here are some of the questions you should try to answer by the end of this pass, depending on what type of paper it is. Did the authors do what they set out to do? Are the methods they used sound? Are their arguments fluid and logical? What assumptions did they make? Now you may have noticed my big assumption, which is that you've already selected a worthwhile article to read. In the case of an assigned reading, that's already been taken care of. If you're doing research, though, you'll need to do some work to see whether a particular paper is worth investing your time in reading at all. That, however, is a task for another video. Research Tools How do you know a paper is legit? From callingbullshit.org A note here that I've made some minor edits, including deletions to the original article, but I've also included the link to the original article, so you can view that if you'd like to. How do you know a paper is legit? By the time students reach high school, most have learned they cannot trust everything they read on the internet. But even by the time students graduate from college, few realize they cannot trust everything they read in scholarly journals. In this article, we discuss how one can distinguish between papers that are relatively trustworthy and those that are best approached with grave skepticism. Before we get into the details, however, we wanna make one thing perfectly clear. Any scientific paper can be wrong. No matter where it is published, no matter who wrote it, no matter how well supported are its arguments, any scientific paper can be wrong. Every hypothesis, every set of data, every claim, and every conclusion is subject to re-examination in light of future evidence. 
Conceptually, this stems from the very nature of science. Empirically, this can be readily observed in the pages of nature and science. We've seen it time and again. The most brilliant researchers and the most elite journals have published claims that turned out to be utterly wrong. What about peer review? But what about peer review? Doesn't that solve the problem? No. Peer review, while an important part of the scientific process, doesn't guarantee that published papers are correct. Peer reviewers carefully read a paper to make sure its methods are reasonable and its reasoning logical. They make sure a paper accurately represents what it adds to the literature and that its conclusions follow from its results. They suggest ways to improve a paper and sometimes recommend additional experiments. But peer reviewers can make mistakes, and more importantly, peer reviewers cannot possibly check every aspect of the work. Peer reviewers don't redo the study, rewrite the code, or even dig too deeply into the data in most cases. Though helpful, peer review cannot catch every innocent mistake, let alone uncover well-concealed acts of scientific misconduct. As a result, there is no surefire way for you, as the reader, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that any particular scientific paper is correct. Usually, the best you can hope to do is to determine that a paper is legitimate. By legitimate, we mean that a paper is reasonably inferred to be, one, written in good faith, two, carried out using appropriate methodologies, three, taken seriously by the relevant scientific community. If a paper is legitimate scholarship, it still may turn out to be incorrect, but at least you've done due diligence. For the remainder of this article, we consider how you can determine whether a paper is legitimate. Where has the paper been published? Traditionally, scholars have looked to scholarly journals to confer legitimacy upon their work. In brief, the process works like this. A researcher submits her work to a journal. The work is sent to other scholars in the field for peer review. The reviewers decide whether the paper merits publication, requires revision, or is not of suitable quality for the journal in question. While these reviewers cannot vouch for the correctness of every element of a paper, they are able to judge the reasonableness of the procedures, results, and interpretations. Researchers view different journals as occupying different positions in a rough hierarchy. This hierarchy is well known and probably overemphasized among researchers. In general, and all else equal, papers published in top journals will represent the largest advances and have the highest credibility, whereas papers published in medium-tier journals will report more modest advances, though not necessarily with lower credibility. Papers in lower-tier journals report the least interesting or least credible findings. A quick way to evaluate the legitimacy of a published paper is to find out about the journal in which it's published. A number of websites purport to rank journal quality or prestige, typically ascertained based on citations. Highly cited journals are thought to be better than their seldom cited competitors. Among these ranking systems, the journal impact factor is the gold standard. Journal impact factor measures the ratio of citations received over a two-year window to the number of citable articles published in that same window. While what constitutes an impressive impact factor varies from one field to another, it's a reasonable rule of thumb to consider that any journal listed in the journal citation reports is at least somewhat reputable, any journal with an impact factor of at least one is decent, and any journal with an impact factor of at least 10 is outstanding. Are the claims commensurate with the venue? Another reasonable check on the legitimacy of a paper is to examine the appropriateness of a paper's claims to its venue. In particular, one should be wary of extraordinary claims appearing in lower-tier venues. 
You can think of this as the scientist's version of, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? In other words, if your paper is such a big deal, why is it in a low-tier journal? Thus, if a paper called Some Weights of Riparian Frogs lists the weights of some frogs in the little-known Tasmanian Journal of Austral Herpetology, there is relatively little cause for concern. A table of frogs' weights, while possibly useful to some specialists in the area, is far from a scientific breakthrough and is well-suited for the journal in question. If, however, a paper called Evidence that Neanderthals went extinct during the Hundred Years' War appears in the equally low-profile Journal of Westphalian Historical Geography, this is serious cause for concern. That finding, if true, would revolutionize our understanding of hominid history, not to mention shake our notion of what it means to be human. Such finding could easily appear in a very high-profile journal. If it does not, that is a strong indicator that something is not right about the story. While the examples above are hypothetical, real examples abound as well. For example, in 2012, television personality Dr. Mehmet Oz used his show to promote a research paper purporting to demonstrate that green coffee extract has near-miraculous properties as weight loss supplement. Despite this remarkable claim that could have enormous influence on hundreds of millions of lives, the paper did not appear in a top medical journal, such as JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, The Lancet, or NEJM, the New England Journal of Medicine. Rather, it appeared in a little-known journal entitled Diabetes, Metabolic Syndrome, and Obesity, Target and Therapy, from a marginal scientific publisher called Dove Press. The journal is not even listed in the journal citation reports. This should set off alarm bells for any reader, and indeed, looking closely at the paper, the results are based on a clinical trial with an absurdly small sample size of 16. Too small a sample to justify the strong claims that the paper makes. Has the paper been retracted or seriously questioned? The small sample size and inglorious venue of the green coffee extract paper described above turned out to be only part of the story. The paper was subsequently retracted because its data could not be validated. While retractions are uncommon, it can be a good idea to check for a retraction or correction before staking too much on the results of a scientific paper. The easiest way to do this is simply to check the paper on the publisher's website, or better yet, if it's a biomedical paper, on PubMed. If a retraction has occurred, it will be clearly marked as such in these places. Below, the PubMed retraction notice for the green coffee extract paper. Unmissable. Compare PubMed's notice above with the journal's own retraction notice below. The highly accessed badge at the top is more prominent than the fact that the article has been retracted. The retraction process can take a long time, and journals have few incentives to move quickly. Thus, it can be valuable to also keep abreast of any post-publication peer review, that is, direct commentary presented outside of traditional journal publications. While finding each and every comment that anyone has made can be tricky, the website pubpeer.com aims to serve as a central repository for comments of this sort. PubPeer allows anonymous comments, which can be useful in allowing whistleblowers to point out image duplications and other evidence of the error or misconduct. While not everyone is a fan, we find this site quite useful. We've installed their Firefox and Chrome browser plugins to alert us with an orange bar anytime a paper or citation has been discussed on PubPeer. Is the publisher legitimate or predatory? You may have heard the expression, publish or perish. This refers to the fact that many academics must publish their research on a regular basis to get hired and promoted, 
to obtain grant funding, and to maintain the esteem of their peers. But publishing isn't so easy. One needs to be able to produce work that is novel and of sufficient quality to clear the hurdles of legitimacy we've discussed above. Until recently, anyway. In the past decade, a vast number of essentially fake journals have arisen that cater to academics' needs to publish their work. The publishers of these journals typically charge authors a fee to publish their work. Then, rather than selling subscriptions or producing print copies, these publishers make that work available for free online. Let's be clear, there's nothing inherently crooked about charging authors to publish. For decades, many leading journals relied on both subscription revenue and revenue from page charges levied on their authors. More recently, many journals have eschewed a subscription-based business model in favor of an open access business model, in which anyone can read the articles for free online. But typically, the authors cover the costs by paying article processing charges that range from about $100 to over $5,000. There are outstanding journals that use this model, including eLife and the PLOS family of journals. The problem with this new crop of fake journals is not that they charge the authors. It's that they don't uphold adequate standards of peer review. Many have fake editorial boards, and while promising to conduct proper peer review, will actually publish anything so long as an author is willing to pay publication fees. This has resulted in some rather silly outcomes but it also creates at least two serious types of problems. First, unsuspecting authors can be duped by these journals, submitting their work to low-quality venues that often disappear from the internet after a few years. Second, authors can co-conspire with these journals to give their pseudoscientific claims a weak veneer of scientific legitimacy. For example, consider this gem from Astrophysics and Aerospace Technology, published by the allegedly predatory Omics Group. The headline reads, Discovering the Total Contents of the Universe. And here's the abstract. Modern scientists have been searching for clues of some type of extraterrestrial life. However, ancient scriptures give very interesting and important information and details concerning the total contents of the whole universe. But it is given in a mathematical language, which has long been forgotten by mankind. As such people have been interpreting those contents, as per their own limited knowledge of geography and cosmology. This has naturally brought about several contradictions and created serious mismatch with the latest scientific findings. The author claims to have deciphered the code in which the Rises, saints, had explained the contents of the universe, loca casa, in terms of living and non-living substances, along with its dependence on time cycle. Enough. It goes on and on, but I'm not going to type it out here. If you really have to see the rest, you can do so on your own time. So how do you tell if a journal is legitimate or predatory? Personally, I feel most comfortable when a journal meets at least one of the following criteria. One, published by a known, reputable publisher. Or two, sponsored by a known, reputable scholarly society. Or three, listed in the JCR or Scopus. But you may not know enough to be sure about any of these criteria or you may be trying to evaluate a journal that meets none of them. Looking at the website may help a bit. Peter Burns has developed a good infographic for Allen Press's Front Matter, highlighting the features of a journal's website that offer clues as to whether the journal is legitimate or predatory. But even this may not provide enough information. What next? Until recently, scholars often turned to an admittedly controversial blacklist of predatory journals curated by librarian Jeffrey Beale. Unfortunately, Beale recently removed his list, along with the rest of his web presence from the internet. 
He has not commented publicly, so it's unclear exactly why, though it's widely believed to be a response to threats, hopefully legal rather than extra-legal, from blacklisted publishers. You can still view Beale's list of publishers and of standalone journals at archive.org, but without updates, their value will decline over time. An alternative and less whack-a-mole approach is to provide a whitelist of non-predatory publishers. Of these, the Directory of Open Access Journals is the best established. Is it a good sign if a paper is indexed by Google Scholar? Nowadays, researchers probably use Google Scholar more often than commercial databases, such as the Clarivate, Web of Science, or Elsevier's Scopus to find relevant articles. The underlying philosophies of these databases are different. Google Scholar attempts to index most everything, whereas Web of Science and Scopus only index papers that have been published in journals they consider worthy of representation. This difference is both a strength and a weakness of Google Scholar. On the positive side, Google Scholar indexes a much larger range of papers, including a great deal of unpublished work, so one can find items not listed in the other databases. On the negative side, papers returned by Google Scholar have even less by way of quality control. Indeed, by indexing not only papers on preprint archives, but also those on personal home pages, Google Scholar is known to index some pretty silly material. In our view, being indexed in the Web of Science or Scopus is a reasonable signal of legitimacy, whereas being indexed in Google Scholar tells us next to nothing about the legitimacy of a paper. Similarly, the appearance of a paper is no longer a good cue that it's legitimate. Prior to 1978, professional quality typesetting lay out of reach of the common man on the street or the common scientist in her lab. Professional publishers more or less had a monopoly on this aspect of scholarly communication. In 1978, all of this changed. Computer scientist Donald Knuth released TEX, a typesetting system designed to run on a personal computer. With TEX, authors could typeset their own text and equations as well or better than any professional system. TEX was such a remarkable advance that almost 40 years later, it remains the most common way of typesetting technical papers, and its output quality also remains unmatched by commercial word processors. The last remaining barriers to the use of TEX, a small but non-zero amount of command line savvy, are disappearing as increasingly good graphical user interfaces are designed, and web-based text editors such as Overleaf and Share Latex are becoming widely adopted. Any crackpot can easily write a paper that looks just like a legitimate piece of scholarship, at least so far as typesetting is concerned. Who are the authors? In principle, science is utterly egalitarian. It doesn't matter who has an idea, it only matters whether that idea offers a better representation of nature. In this sense, the identity of a paper's author should not matter in the least. In practice, however, there's no reason why we should not approach a paper as a good Bayesian would taking into account all prior information when making judgments. This brings us to the issue of who the authors are. Much as it strains against our ideological impulses, we feel that when trying to assess the legitimacy of a paper, the identity of the authors provides useful information of several types. These include, one, are the authors well-established? On one hand, we believe that the best ideas in science often come from graduate students and postdocs, and we believe that people pay too much attention to famous names. On the other hand, and as much as it pains us to say this, with all else equal, a paper from a researcher with an extensive publication record and strong reputation is somewhat more credible than a paper from authors who have not published other scholarly work. Part of this is a simple Bayesian calculation. People who have done good work in the past are likely to be doing good work now. 
But there's also an interesting incentive issue here. An example illustrates. It's hard for an amateur to evaluate the quality of a diamond at a glance. So think about where you'd feel safer buying a diamond. At Tiffany & Company? Or from some guy with a reputation of plus two on eBay? Obviously, Tiffany & Company is a better bet. And a big part of this is because their massive brick-and-mortar presence means that they're in it for the long run. They have an enormous amount to lose from trying to pass along garbage. Not so the fellow on eBay, who can simply start a new account tomorrow with little loss of reputational capital. We feel the same holds for scholars. A senior professor with 100 papers to her credit is doing something very different when she stakes her reputation on a bold new claim than is a researcher in the private sector with no prior publications. The green coffee paper we've been discussing is a good illustration. The senior author who conducted the actual trial, Mysore V. Nagendran, does not have an appreciable publication record. Other than the paper and related conference presentations, he's published at most one other paper a decade earlier, and we have not been able to verify that this was not published by a different researcher who happens to share the same name. Two, are the authors experts in the specific area treated in the paper? While many good papers have been written by newcomers to a field, and while we're grateful to philosophers and physicists and so forth for taking our work in their areas seriously despite our lack of track record, we feel that all else equal, a paper is more likely to be reliable when written by authors with substantial experience in the area. Three, do the authors have a vested interest in the results they're publishing? Most researchers feel papers are less credible when their authors have a direct financial stake in the results reported. Our green coffee paper again provides an example. It turns out that this study was funded by Applied Food Sciences, Inc., the company that manufactured the green coffee extract in question. They both paid for the original trials and hired the two lead authors to rewrite the paper after the original manuscript could not be published. The close involvement of APS in the trial is problematic. It does not stretch the imagination far to imagine that this could have had something to do with the senior author's extensive alterations of the data, or with the two lead authors' failure to rectify serious inconsistencies in the data they received. So how do you know whether the authors have a financial stake in the results? One way to tell is simply to look at whether the authors are affiliated with firms that would benefit from the results of a study. An experiment trial showing no deleterious health consequences of a pesticide is substantially less credible if authored by employees of the pesticide manufacturer. Another is to look at the funding section of a study. Some industry funders are able to put undue pressure on researchers to publish only those results that benefit the company. Especially in biomedicine, journals now require detailed conflict of interest, or COI statements, for each author, disclosing any such financial relationship be it in the form of corporate research funding, a stake in a related company, consulting agreements, or other associations. Unfortunately, this was not helpful in the Green Coffee paper. The authors of that paper asserted that they had no conflicts of interest to declare. Recall that this work was published in a low-quality journal. Higher-tier journals probably do a better job of verifying COI statements. Summary. Science is not immune to bullshit. There's bullshit in legitimate papers written by good authors and published in top journals. That kind of bullshit can be tricky to catch, and much of our effort in this course goes toward providing you the skills with which to do so. In this piece, however, we're dealing with something different and easier to detect. Papers that superficially look a bit like real science, but do not represent legitimate work. You'll come across this stuff occasionally through Google searches, and the popular press can be fooled on occasion. Learn to identify the signs that a paper is not legitimate science. And as you read, 
be aware of your scholarly surroundings at all times. Statistical terms used in research studies. A primer for media by Leighton Walter Kyle for the Journalist's Resource, published April 7, 2015. From sample to confounding variables, a compilation of useful statistical concepts with which journalism students and working journalists should be familiar. When assessing academic studies, media members are often confronted by pages not only full of numbers, but also loaded with concepts such as selection bias, p-value, and statistical inference. Statistics courses are available at most universities, of course, but are often viewed as something to be taken, passed, and quickly forgotten. However, for media members and public communicators of many kinds, it's imperative to do more than just read study abstracts. Understanding the methods and concepts that underpin academic studies is essential to being able to judge the merits of a particular piece of research. Even if one can't master statistics, knowing the basic language can help in formulating better, more critical questions for experts, and it can foster deeper thinking and skepticism about findings. Further, the emerging field of data journalism requires that reporters bring more analytical rigor to the increasingly large amounts of numbers, figures, and data they use. Grasping some of the academic theory behind statistics can help ensure that rigor. Most studies attempt to establish a correlation between two variables. For example, how having good teachers might be associated with, a phrase often used by academics, better outcomes later in life, or how the weight of a car is associated with fatal collisions. But detecting such a relationship is only a first step. The ultimate goal is to determine causation, that one of the two variables drives the other. There is a time-honored phrase to keep in mind. Correlation is not causation. This can be usefully amended to correlation is not necessarily causation, as the nature of the relationship needs to be determined. Another key distinction to keep in mind is that studies can either explore observed data, descriptive statistics, or use observed data to predict what is true of areas beyond the data, inferential statistics. The statement, from 2000 to 2005, 70% of the land cleared in the Amazon and recorded in Brazilian government data was transformed into pasture, is a descriptive statistic. Receiving your college degree increases your lifetime earnings by 50% is an inferential statistic. Here are some other basic statistical concepts with which journalism students and working journalists should be familiar. A sample is a portion of an entire population. Inferential statistics seek to make predictions about a population based on the results observed in a sample of that population. There are two primary types of population samples, random and stratified. For a random sample, study subjects are chosen completely by chance, while a stratified sample is constructed to reflect the characteristics of the population at large, gender, age, or ethnicity, for example. There are a wide range of sampling methods, each with its advantages and disadvantages. Attempting to extend the results of a sample to a population is called generalization. This can be done only when the sample is truly representative of the entire population. Generalizing results from a sample to the population must take into account sample variation. Even if the sample selected is completely random, there is still a degree of variance within the population that will require your results from within a sample to include a margin of error. For example, the results of a poll of likely voters could give the margin of error in percentage points. 47% of those polled said they would vote for the measure, with a margin of error of 3 percentage points. 
Thus, if the actual percentage voting for the measure was as low as 44% or as high as 50%, this result would be consistent with the poll. The greater the sample size, the more representative it tends to be of a population as a whole. Thus, the margin of error falls and the confidence level rises. Most studies explore the relationship between two variables. For example, that prenatal exposure to pesticides is associated with lower birth weight. This is called the alternative hypothesis. Well-designed studies seek to disprove the null hypothesis. In this case, that prenatal pesticide exposure is not associated with lower birth weight. Significance tests of the study's results determine the probability of seeing such results if the null hypothesis were true. The p-value indicates how unlikely this would be. If the p-value is 0.05, there is only a 5% probability of seeing such interesting results if the null hypothesis were true. If the p-value is 0.01, there is only a 1% probability. The other threat to a sample's validity is the notion of bias. Bias comes in many forms, but most common bias is based on the selection of subjects. For example, if subjects self-select into a sample group, then the results are no longer externally valid, as the type of person who wants to be in a study is not necessarily similar to the population that we're seeking to draw inferences about. When two variables move together, they are said to be correlated. Positive correlation means that as one variable rises or falls, the other does as well. Caloric intake and weight, for example. Negative correlation indicates that two variables move in opposite directions, say, vehicle speed and travel time. So if a scholar writes, income is negatively correlated with poverty rates, what he or she means is that as income rises, poverty rates fall. Causation is when change in one variable alters another. For example, air temperature and sunlight are correlated. When the sun is up, temperatures rise. But causation flows in only one direction. This is also known as cause and effect. Regression analysis is a way to determine if there is or isn't a correlation between two or more variables and how strong any correlation might be. At its most basic, this involves plotting data points on an x-y axis. In our example cited above, vehicle weight and fatal accidents, looking for the average causal effect. This means looking at how the graph's dots are distributed and establishing a trend line. Again, correlation isn't necessarily causation. The correlation coefficient is a measure of linear association or clustering around a line. While causation is sometimes easy to prove, frequently it can often be difficult because of confounding variables, unknown factors that affect the two variables being studied. Studies require well-designed and executed experiments to ensure that the results are reliable. When causation has been established, the factor that drives change, in the above example, sunlight, is the independent variable. The variable that is driven is the dependent variable. Elasticity, a term frequently used in economic studies, measures how much a change in one variable affects another. For example, if the price of vegetables rises 10% and consumers respond by cutting back purchases by 10%, the expenditure elasticity is 1.0. The increase in price equals the drop in consumption. But if purchases fall by 15%, the elasticity is 1.5 and consumers are said to be price sensitive for that item. If consumption were to fall only 5%, the elasticity is 0.5, and consumers are price insensitive. A rise in price of a certain amount doesn't reduce purchases to the same degree. Standard deviation provides insight into how much variation there is within a group of values. It measures the deviation, or difference, from the group's mean, or average. 
Be careful to distinguish the following terms as you interpret results, average, mean, and median. The first two terms are synonymous and refer to the average value of a group of numbers. Add up all the figures, divide by the number of values, and that's the average or mean. A median, on the other hand, is the central value and can be useful if there's an extremely high or low value in a collection of values, say a Wall Street CEO's salary in a list of people's incomes. Pay close attention to percentages versus percentage points. They're not the same thing. For example, if 40 out of 100 homes in a distressed suburb have underwater mortgages, the rate is 40%. If a new law allows 10 homeowners to refinance, now only 30 mortgages are troubled. The new rate is 30%, a drop of 10 percentage points. 40 minus 30 equals 10. This is not 10% less than the old rate, however. In fact, the decrease is 25%. 10 divided by 40 equals 0.25, which is 25%. In descriptive statistics, quantiles can be used to divide data into equal-sized subsets. For example, dividing a list of individuals sorted by height into two parts, the tallest and the shortest, results in two quantiles, with the median height value as the dividing line. Quartiles separate data set into four equal-sized groups, deciles into 10 groups, and so forth. Individual items can be described as being in the upper decile, meaning the group of the largest values, meaning that they are higher than 90% of those in the data set. Note that understanding statistical terms isn't a license to freely salt your stories with them. Always work to present studies' key findings in clear, jargon-free language. You'll be doing a service not only for your readers, but also for the researchers. Eight questions to ask when interpreting academic studies. A primer for media by Justin Feldman and John Ruby for the Journalist Resource, published March 26, 2015. Scholarly research is a great source for rigorous, unbiased information, but making judgments about its quality can be difficult. Here are some important questions to ask when reading studies. Reading scholarly studies can help journalists integrate rigorous, unbiased sources of information into their reporting. These studies are typically carried out by professors and professional researchers at universities, think tanks, and government institutions, and are published through a peer review process in which those familiar with the study area ensure that there are no major flaws. Even for people who carry out research, however, interpreting scientific and social science studies and making judgments about their quality can be difficult tasks. In a now famous article, Stanford professor John Ioannidis argues that most published research findings are false due to inherent limitations in how researchers design studies Health and medical studies can be particularly attractive to media, but be aware that there is a long history of faulty findings. Occasionally, too, studies can be the product of outright fraud. A 1998 study falsely linking vaccines and autism is now perhaps the canonical example, as it spurred widespread and long-lasting societal damage. Journalists should also always examine the funding sources behind the study, which are frequently declared at the study's conclusion. Before journalists write about research and speak with authors, they should be able to both interpret a study's results generally and understand the appropriate degree of skepticism that a given study's findings warrant. This requires data literacy, some familiarity with statistical terms, and a basic knowledge of hypothesis testing and construction of theories. Journalists should also be well aware that most academic research contains careful qualifications about findings. The common complaint from scientists and social scientists 
is that news media tend to pump up findings and hype studies through catchy headlines, distorting public understanding. But landmark studies sometimes do no more than tighten the margin of error around a given measurement. Not inherently flashy, but intriguing to an audience if explained with rich context and clear presentation. Here are some important questions to ask when reading a scientific study. One, what are the researchers' hypotheses? A hypothesis is a research question that a study seeks to answer. Sometimes researchers state their hypotheses explicitly, but more often their research questions are implicit. Hypotheses are testable assertions usually involving the relationship between two variables. In a study of smoking and lung cancer, the hypothesis might be that smokers develop lung cancer at a higher rate than non-smokers over a five-year period. It's also important to note that there are formal definitions of null and alternative hypotheses for use with statistical analysis. Two, what are the independent and dependent variables? Independent variables are factors that influence particular outcomes. Dependent variables are measures of the outcomes themselves. In the study assessing the relationship between smoking and lung cancer, smoking is the independent variable because the researcher assumes it predicts lung cancer, the dependent variable. Some fields use related terms such as exposure and outcome. Pay particular attention to how the researchers define all of the variables. There can be quite a bit of nuance in the definitions. Also look at the methods by which the researchers measure the variables. Generally speaking, a variable measured using a subject's response to a survey question is less trustworthy than one measured through more objective means, reviewing laboratory findings in their medical records, for example. Three, what is the unit of analysis? For most studies involving human subjects, the individual person is the unit of analysis. However, studies are sometimes interested in a different level of analysis that makes comparisons between classrooms, hospitals, schools, or states, for example, rather than between individuals. Four, how well does the study design address causation? Most studies identify correlations or associations between variables, but typically the ultimate goal is to determine causation. Certain study designs are more useful than others for the purpose of determining causation. At the most basic level, studies can be placed into one of two categories, experimental and observation. In experimental studies, the researchers decide who is exposed to the independent variable and who is not. In observational studies, the researchers do not have any control over who is exposed to the independent variable. Instead, they make comparisons between groups that are already different from one another. In nearly all cases, experimental studies provide stronger evidence than observational studies. Here are descriptions of some of the most common study designs, presented along with their respective values for inferring causation. Randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, also known as clinical trials, are experimental studies that are considered the gold standard in research. Out of all study designs, they have the most value for determining causation, although they do have limitations. In an RCT, researchers randomly divide subjects into at least two groups, one that receives a treatment and the other, the control group, that receives either no treatment or a simulated version of the treatment called a placebo. The independent variable in these experiments is whether or not the subject receives the real treatment. Ideally, an RCT should be double blind. The participant should not know to which treatment group they have been assigned, nor should the study staff know. This arrangement helps to avoid bias. Researchers commonly use RCTs to meet regulatory requirements, 
such as evaluating pharmaceuticals for the Food and Drug Administration. Due to issues of cost, logistics, and ethics, RCTs are fairly uncommon for other purposes. Longitudinal studies, like RCTs, follow the same subjects over a given time period. Unlike in RCTs, they are observational. Researchers do not assign the independent variable in longitudinal studies. They instead observe what happens in the real world. A longitudinal study might compare the risk for heart disease among one group of people who are exposed to high levels of air pollution to the risk of heart disease among another group exposed to low levels of air pollution. The problem is that because there is no random assignment, the groups may differ from one another in other important ways, and as a result, we cannot completely isolate the effects of air pollution. These differences result in confounding and other forms of bias. For that reason, longitudinal studies have less validity for inferring causation than RCTs and other experimental study designs. Longitudinal studies have more validity than other kinds of observational studies, however. Case control studies are technically a type of longitudinal study, but they're unique enough to discuss separately. Common in public health and medical research, case control studies begin with a group of people who have already developed a particular disease and compare them to a similar but disease-free group recruited by the researchers. These studies are more likely to suffer from bias than other longitudinal studies for two reasons. First, they are always retrospective, meaning they collect data about independent variables years after the exposures of interest occurred, sometimes even after the subject has died. Second, the group of disease-free people is very likely to differ from the group that developed the disease, creating a substantial risk for confounding. Cross-sectional studies are a kind of observational study that measure both dependent and independent variables at a single point in time. Although researchers may administer the same cross-sectional survey every few years, they do not follow the same subjects over time. An important part of determining causation is establishing that the independent variable occurred for a given subject before the dependent variable occurred. But because they do not measure the variables over time, Cross-sectional studies cannot determine that a hypothesized cause precedes its effect, so the design is limited to making inferences about correlations rather than causation. Ecological studies are observational studies that are similar to cross-sectional studies, except that they measure at least one variable on the group level rather than the subject level. For example, an ecological study may look at the relationship between individuals' meat consumption and their incidence of colon cancer. But rather than using individual level data, the study relies on national cancer rates and national averages for meat consumption. While it might seem that higher meat consumption is linked to a higher risk of cancer, there is no way to know if the individuals eating more meat within a country are the same people who are more likely to develop cancer. This means that ecological studies are not only inadequate for inferring causation, they are also inadequate for establishing a correlation. As a consequence, they should be regarded with strong skepticism. Systematic reviews are surveys of existing studies on a given topic. Investigators specify inclusion and exclusion criteria to weed out studies that are either irrelevant to their research question or poorly designed. Using keywords, they systematically search research databases, present the findings of the studies they include, and draw conclusions based on their consideration of the findings. Assuming that the review includes only well-designed studies, Systematic reviews are more useful for inferring causation than any single well-designed study. For a sense of how systematic reviews are interpreted and used by researchers in the field, see How to Read a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis and Apply the Results to Patient Care 
published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Meta-analyses are similar to systematic reviews, but use the original data from all included studies to create a new analysis. As a result, a meta-analysis is able to draw conclusions that are more meaningful than a systematic review. Again, a meta-analysis is more useful for inferring causation than any single study, assuming that all studies are well designed. Five, what are the study's results? There are several aspects involved in understanding a study's results. Understand whether or not the study found statistically significant relationships between the dependent and independent variables. If the relationship is statistically significant, it means that any difference observed between groups is unlikely to be due to random chance. P-values help researchers to decide whether observed differences are simply due to chance or represent a true difference between groups. If the relationship is statistically significant, it is then important to determine the effect size, which is the size of the difference observed between the groups. Subjects enrolled in a weight loss program may have experienced a statistically significant reduction in weight compared to those in a control group. But is that difference one ounce, one pound, or 10 pounds? There are myriad ways in which studies present effect sizes. Such obscure terms as regression coefficients, odds ratios, and population attributable fractions may come into play. Unfortunately, research articles sometimes fail to interpret effect sizes in words. In these cases, it may be best to consult an expert to help develop a plain English interpretation. Even if there is a statistically significant difference between comparison groups, this does not mean the effect size is meaningful. A weight loss program that leads to a total weight reduction of one ounce on average, or a policy that saves one life out of a billion, may not be meaningful. Again, consulting an expert in the field can help to determine how meaningful an effect size is, a determination that is ultimately a subjective judgment call. Six, how generalizable are the results? Study results are useful because they help us make inferences about the relationship between independent and dependent variables among a larger population. The subjects enrolled in the study must be similar to those in the larger population, however, in order to generalize the findings. Even a perfectly designed study may be of limited value when its results cannot be generalized. It's important to pay attention to the composition of the study sample. If the unit of analysis is the individual, important factors to consider regarding the group's composition include age, race or ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, and geographic location. While some samples are deliberately constructed to be representative of a country or region, most are not. Seven, what limitations do the authors note? Within a research article, authors often state some of the study's limitations explicitly. This information can be very helpful in determining the strength of the evidence presented in the study. Eight, what conclusions do similar studies draw? With some notable exceptions, a single study is unlikely to fundamentally change what is already known about the research question it addresses. It's important to compare a new study's findings to existing studies that address similar research questions, particularly systematic reviews or meta-analyses if available. Further, one hidden form of bias that is easily missed is what's called selecting on the dependent variable which is the research practice of focusing on only those areas where there are effects and ignoring ones where there are not. This can lead to exaggerated conclusions and thereby false media narratives. For example, it's tempting to say that science has become polarized as survey data suggests significant differences in public opinion on issues such as climate change, vaccinations, and nuclear power. 
However, on most scientific issues, there is almost no public debate or controversy. Additionally, the reality of publication bias, academic journals have traditionally been more interested in publishing studies that show effects rather than no effects, can create a biased incentive structure that distorts larger truths. For an updated overview, see a 2014 paper by Stanford's John Ioannidis, How to Make More Published Research True.